This is the Final Whistle podcast from the Wrexham AFC media team. Hi, I'm Mark Griffiths and welcome to the Ask Wrexham podcast where we try to answer your questions. As we always explain, the hashtag Ask Wrexham, A-S-K-W-X-M is what we use on match days on Twitter to get in touch with you or to allow you to get in touch with us, the commentary team on Wrexham Player. But... The trouble is we never get a chance to get through all the questions and they're so good and there are some as well that we just, you know, we want to do justice to them. Um, So that's why we have this podcast. So let's crack straight on. And firstly, I'll make good uh, the mistake I made last week with a a slight technical problem. And I recorded the answer to two questions, but they then didn't feature on the podcast. So here are those two questions. Firstly, from S. Janie Lightning asking, how many of Aaron Hayden's goals have been headers since coming into Wrexham FC? How many, <laughs> and how many have been Hayden toes or combinations? Right, well, I can answer that quite straightforwardly. Hayden scored 18 goals for Wrexham, which is a fantastic amount for a defender. 16 of those have been headers. And as for Tozer Hayden combinations, uh, five have come from either directly from Tozer's throws or from the loose ball created by Tozer's throws. So, wow, that's that's pretty impressive. Just to put Hayden's achievements into context as well, of course, he is um, well. He has already this season scored more goals than any other defender in Wrexham's history. Uh, Eddie May from the seventies is the man he has to chase after. He scored, I think it was just over 40, if I remember correctly. Should have done research before I started recording this, didn't I? And the second question that got deleted by accident was James Harvey. And he said, the New York Mets baseball, I know, I remember Mike Piazza. The Nye Mets, as Apu called them. Um, they made headlines by spending over $800 million on players in the past few weeks. Woof. In contrast, like Chelsea, isn't it? In contrast, the NFL, NBA and NHL have salary caps. Are there restrictions on how much a rich owner can spend on players in the National League? Great question. Um, No, essentially, at the moment. Um, If I could give you a story from the recent past, Salford City came through our league. They've always traditionally been lower than Wrexham's current status. But they were bought by six ex-Man United players, including David Beckham, and uh, Paul Lim, who is a Singaporean businessman who also owns Valencia in Spain. So they got a lot of money behind them, and they basically, it was a sort of open secret, that they were looking to spend a lot of money while they were in the National League to build up a team that could cope with the higher divisions, because when you go into the Football League is when you would expect to be having... uh, financial restrictions placed upon you so the national league as things stands don't have restrictions now here's where it gets a little bit complicated there's talk that they will have restrictions in the national league next season so maybe it's a good idea for robin ryan to spend a bit this season (laughs) not trying to tell you how to do your job bosses um and then the football league right they've introduced spending uh caps but there have been problems and uh, some of their plans were defeated in court. So it's a little bit up in the air at the moment. The thing is about salary caps, the big debate and the thing which uh, didn't stand up in court is between hard and soft salary caps. So 
a hard salary cap is there's just a figure and that is it. You can't go above that figure, no matter what your finances are. So <clears throat> obviously that favours smaller teams because bigger teams might actually bring a lot more money in but can't spend it all. The other concept is a soft salary cap, which basically is that your sal your the amount you can spend on salaries is linked to your revenues, uh, which obviously means that well, essentially it's encouraging clubs to spend within their means. So it'll be interesting to see how that develops. It'll have an impact on Wrexham how that develops, but we can also see why Robin Ryan's idea is that through their celebrity they can build up uh you know sponsorship deals because people will give us more money because of them i mean tiktok weren't about to make us the football club they sponsor <laughs> until robin ryan came on the scene for example so it's it's leveraging their value isn't it to benefit wrexham football club and set up a situation where the club is making money for itself and doesn't have to rely on them as benefactors their value to us comes in other ways as well like the, the, you know, the publicity we get through them and therefore the higher sponsorship money we can bring in, if that makes sense. I hope it did. Now, Darren's happy place. Nice intro to the Coventry match. Uh, he said it was sent this during the Solihull away match. Great game today. Already excited about the cup tie with Coventry next week. Parky has pretty successful cup record with past teams. Based on past performances, any predictions or expectations for how he approaches Coventry? And he also went on to say, for example, might he approach Coventry more conservatively and defence-minded? Or will he take his chances with the usual style of play? I am inclined to think that his initial intention will be to try to play as we normally do. I mean, let's be honest, this team is set up to attack. We've got two wing-backs who play like wingers. In midfield, you've got Elliot Lee, who wants to go forwards, drive on and create. So I... I and as well, remember, we got such confidence. You know, we're winning week after week. So, you know, maybe he'll be inclined, I think, in the first instance, to be positive. Not to go... Not gung-ho, but positive. We'd have to react then, maybe, to what... Coventry are like, how they respond to us and also, and this is the big thing I put something up on, on the Wrexham Player blog today how are Coventry going to approach this game? Are Coventry seeing this as a match that they can win easily with a half strength side? I Already their manager's implied he's going to be rotating his team but to what extent? They also have some injuries which might limit the extent to which they could rotate but okay, Coventry going pretty well in the, in the championship. They're only four points off the playoffs, so they'd be tough opposition. Let's be honest, to go there and win would be a hell of an achievement. But if they pick a you know a mixed strength team, well, we do have a lot of good experienced players, so we might be able to spring a bit of a shock on them. So I think we'll be pretty positive, especially if we see a Coventry team which isn't the same as they usually pick in the league. I think we may go at them thinking this is a chance to hurt them. Of course, they may well decide that they're going to have players like, well, the star man, Victor Yuckerez, as their top scorer and Premier League team supposedly are sniffing around him. They might have him, say, on the bench. So that if things start to go wrong, they throw him on and he can try and do some damage. But yeah, I, th I think we'll be pretty positive about that. Also, they play the same shape as us, Coventry too. 
So, you know, naturally we can sort of match them up. And if our wing-backs push their wing-backs into their own half, it's to our advantage. So there's a few different indicators there we could see. And it's easier to shut a game down if the two teams have the same sort of shape often. So if we are going into it boldly and then think, oh, this isn't panning out right, we maybe have the scope to sort of win our individual battles and close it down a bit and just not not need too many extreme chances. That's my theory anyway. Well, you know, I don't have taken responsibility for it, do I? It's easy for me to say that. Now then, Michelle Olsen said, can, can I comment on the academy system in football? Anything notable you should know about Wrexham's academy, either now or historically? So a reference to the system today, and it piques my interest. Of course it will. Um, it's complicated, though. <laughs> I'm scared I might get a part of it wrong. Um, we have a centre of excellence, which is the level below academy. I think I'm right in saying this. Um, academies are... Uh, well, basically, everything was redone in England, at least, in 2012, when they had the uh, what was it, the Future Player Performance Plan. Was it that? Future? Oh, something. Elite Player Performance Plan. That's what it was, isn't it? Anyway, um, and this was like a plan to bring young players through. It revolutionised academies. Uh, this goes hand in hand with the, the massive growth in coaches who have got the UEFA qualified coaching badges um that's a system which has been in play now for what about 20 years i'd imagine uh britain as always is the slowest to take on this sort of stuff because in britain we tend to value getting stuck in more than thinking I, I, i'd say that's true across the board in all aspects of british life um so but we're but now you know football has caught up with the rest of Europe in that respect now, um, and so you've got a lot more qualified coaches who are good coaches who know what they're doing and, and a more organised academy system. And the idea is it brings through more good players. And I think you could probably argue that's been effective. If you look at the England squad um, in the last couple of tournaments, there's a lot of young players have come through really high quality. Now in Wales, interestingly, there has been a massive focus on young players and bringing them through and the reputation is that welsh coaches and the welsh uefa badge system tends to be seen as better than the english one a lot of high profile players when they've retired have done their coaching badges in wales rather than england for precisely that reason and colliers park the training center on the edge of wrexham used to be wrexham's training ground as part of the bad ownership we had before we lost that we sometimes still train there but it's been bought now by the welsh fa and it's at the northern training center for the welsh fa so north wales that's that's the base for developing players sometimes we use it uh, facilities are very good um and we're developing our own training center in the future we will be right okay that's all waffle that's all waffle sorry so we, I, I think I'm right in saying we are still, I'm sure we are still a centre of excellence. Um, that's a level below academy level. You see, there's an awful lot of expenditure in these things. The uh, centres of excellence are very expensive. And when the fans owned the club, they committed to keeping the, it going because it would bring young players through. Even though, really, I mean, it was a hell of a lot of money for a club in the conference. Most clubs in the conference have to abandon that. The Football League or the Premier League um, fund 
centres of excellence academies, you lose that after a couple of years dropping into the National League. So we've not had that funding for a long time. It's another reason why it'd be great to go up and get that sort of money coming back in. But Rob and Ryan have also committed to it. Um, so uh, talking about it as it is now, we have a good setup, a very good setup. We have good people there, and that's ju not just because of the increase in qualified coaches. Uh, Dan Nolan is the head of youth development. He's a very, very highly rated coach um, who knows the ropes, and so he's a terrific man to have on board. Now, going back historically, we do have an excellent reputation for bringing good players and coaches through. I'll talk about the players in a little bit, but if we think about coaches, um, there's been a lot of people who have started off and cut their teeth at Wrexham's Youth Academy, uh, or Youth Centre of Excellence, and have then moved on to very high-profile jobs. Now, the most obvious one of those is Steve Cooper, who is now Nottingham Forest's manager, but he played one game for Wrexham, he went on to be a coach, youth coach of Wrexham. He ran the youth setup for a bit. He moved on eventually to Liverpool and ran their youth setup, and then was made manager of the England under, oh, I want to say under twenties, and they won the World Cup with him as their manager. So he's a great example. But there are quite a lot actually dotted around, not just Britain but the world. There's a, there's a lot of people who have been, who have started themselves off at Wrexham and then gone on to extremely high-profile roles and, and genuine success. So that's something the club can be proud of. Um, again, going back to the current lot, talking about players, um, Rob and Ryan have come at exactly the right time for Wrexham. It's wonderful because it really, th their commitment to young players helps enormously. So we've got a reserve team now. Now, we have not had a reserve team for years and one of the problems of the sort of academy football and centre of excellence football is how valuable is the experience that the players get. Okay, you're playing against other players from your age group. Now, that means you're going to be exposed to good quality players, no question. But you're not going to be exposed to the physicality of adult football and you're not going to be exposed to the the drive of the professional footballer, don't get me wrong, you know, these young lads are motivated, they want to get a career, it's dog-eat-dog, dog. not many of them will go on to be professional, but it's something different again when you're playing lower division football against a bloke who knows that if he has a run of bad games he'll get dropped, then he'll lose his contract, then he'll be unemployed, and how does he bring money into his household to feed his kids, you know, so that, that can be a different motivation again. Um, now, Rob and Ryan coming in have re-established our reserve team, which is brilliant because the youth team don't just have to play the oldest ones of the youth team against young teams. They can also play in the reserve team against grown men. Uh, our reserve team often varies between pretty much the youth team or maybe a mixture of youth team and the, the senior players. That's good as well, being in the same changing room as senior players. But it's not just that. You're playing against... You know, your 32-year-old big tough centre-back who's maybe on the way down but knows the ropes and is fighting to get back into the team. It's good for these young lads to play against them. Um, so so that's brilliant that Rob and Ryan have reinstituted that. And it's also another brilliant thing is that because they've brought their money into it and they want to support the young players, they are bringing in 
they've 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 brought in the idea of giving more professional contracts to players. So if you look at the young the young lads now who are playing in the reserves, there's quite a lot of them on professional contracts. This hasn't been happening at Wrexham for a long time because we have other resources. And I, you know, I would argue this has been not only to the detriment of Wrexham, but also to the detriment of a lot of young players who, you know, given the chance to develop, might have turned into something. But you know, we ha- we've had to make decisions quite early on about young players and whether we're going to hold on to them or not because we didn't have the money to keep more than one or two. And that was, that was typical. Maybe one or two a season would get kept and the rest would be thrown away. The team that Jake Bickerstaff and Max Kluwerth came through got a chunk of first-team experience. I'm not going to go into too much detail over this, but basically because we were in a Scottish competition. That sounds weird. We didn't want to be. And so the manager then, Dean Keats, basically picked the youth team with a few other players added on. And as a result, a good handful of those youth players got to play some competitive, serious matches. Clueth and Bickerstaff were the outstanding ones, but there were others who looked good. We couldn't keep the others. We didn't have the budget. Now, it's a shame, we would do. You know, if we, <laughs> if those players had come through and done that last season, they'd all be still with us on, uh, you know, sort of uh, professional contracts. So it's brilliant Rob and Ryan to come in, but you you wonder sometimes whether we've we've lost players just because we don't have the cash, you know, who might develop a little bit late. An example of how having the resources to back players can work is Sean Pedgick, who was a very good centre-back for us at the start of this century. Um, He played one game for Wrexham when he was 17 at Port Vale, derby game. And he played really well. Centre-back did brilliantly. But then he wouldn't be playing because there were injuries. And so he was brought back in. Uh, you know, when the, when the players came back in, he wasn't in the side. And he didn't appear for another year and a half, which was slightly surprising. Then he came back in and he did well. And you know, played first-team football for us for quite a while. Now, the strange thing is, what wasn't really made public until afterwards, quite rightly, was that the reason... Part of the reason he'd not come back into the team sooner was that his form completely collapsed. When he was about 18, his form collapsed, and for about a year he was playing really badly. Nobody could explain it. He felt um, out of sorts all the time, and he didn't know why. And fortunately, sports science was just starting to come in, and we discovered that he had um, shin splints because he was still growing. And so the club decided we'll show patience here because they could afford it then we had a bit more money then or well we were spending more money then i should say um and so the club was more patient and he developed into a good player once he got over the shin splints so an illustration of how money buys patience and can help players to develop because he played first team football for us for a good five six years he was excellent in the ldv vans final that we won at the millennium stadium he was a regular in the team and got promoted in 2003 you know he played a substantial player for exxon um but we probably you know in recent years of a player that came through we'd have re- probably released him after one game because he'd not developed as we'd have hoped Hope that makes sense. So the other thing is that Wrexham's reputation for young players is terrific. In the 70s, our greatest period in our history, that side was based on a lot of very good young players who came through, who became legends of the Welsh game. Joey Jones, Mickey Thomas, 
you know, the great players. Dave Smallman, who was a highly gifted striker, scored a lot of goals, got a big move to Everton, was scoring goals in the top level, was scoring goals for Wales, and then got a terrible injury and basically had to stop playing in his mid-twenties. But loads of terrific young players, also being near Liverpool in those days, we were quite crafty and picked up a lot of lads from Liverpool into our uh, youth system, which, you know, as we still do. Uh, and develop them. Players like Alan Dwyer comes to mind, and you know, so we we had a lot of players. Oh, of course, Mickey Evans, Gareth Davis in our defence in that year. Uh, Graham Whittle, another outstanding Liverpudlian. Um, so loads of good players then, and that's continued throughout time. The side that got promoted in 1993 had a lot of young lads that we'd brought through the youth system. Uh, players like Mark Morris in goal, uh, Phil Hardy at left-back, Carl Connolly, Gareth Owen, those three are all in the top ten for most appearances for Wrexham. Steve Watkin, who scored the winning goal against Arsenal in 1992. Brian Hughes was our manager a while back. He came through in the 90s as well, as did Mark McGregor, who had a good career in the football league. I mean, lots of... Wrexham have always been quite proud of the young lads that we brought through. And uh, long may that continue. That was a very long answer, Michelle. I'm terribly sorry. Okay, Kelly Morrison said, Catching up on older Dragonheart episodes, and wonder if you can explain why Wrexham was hindered in signing outside the January transfer window um, last season. Any such obstacles once we're promoted? Um, yes, sadly. Guess that in a sec. Right, basically... It's a weird one again. Everything's weird in my mind, isn't it? Um, we are a Welsh team playing in the English system. But elements of our admin are done under the Welsh umbrella, if you will. So we don't play in Welsh competitions, but we are affiliated to the Welsh FA rather than the English FA. And this has a couple of weird effects. One of them is that when players are sent off and we appeal, it goes to the Welsh FA, not the English FA, which is, i got to say, a very strange anomaly, which leaves us open to accusations of favouritism. Um, and I can see why. You know, the, the other teams in the league all go to the FA, we go to our local FA, if you will. Uh, and whenever a player gets off on an appeal, uh, the other clubs are very quick to say, oh, well, it's because it's a Welsh sticking up for the Welsh, isn't it, you know? Um, I don't think that's true, but I, but I can see why people are going to say that. Uh, the other one, though, is that the Welsh FA... Well, OK, sorry. There are transfer windows brought in by FIFA saying that you can only buy players in January and between, well, basically June the 30th and there's a date in September... Let's say September or late August. So those two windows are two points where you can buy players. And obviously that can't apply to every single football club in the world. So there are exceptions. Um, and the exceptions often are just how low down the levels you go. Um, in England, traditionally, it was the National League, the level Wrexham were at, was where the windows didn't apply. Um, and that was confirmed three, four years ago. The problem was that we were under the Welsh FA's administration. I mean, let's be honest, all the Welsh teams in the English pyramid, which is Cardiff, Swansea, Newport and us, are much bigger than the teams in the Welsh setup. And so they said, well, you know, our Welsh top level have to have the transfer window apply to them. So clearly that applies to the 
the English-based Welsh clubs. Now, it doesn't matter with Newport, Cardiff, Swansea, because to answer the second part of your question, everybody in the Football League and the Premier League have to stick to the transfer windows. But we were obviously at a huge disadvantage because we we could only buy players in January during the season. Everyone else in our league could buy players whenever they wanted to. Remarkable. Um, there was one particular situation which was very frustrating. Well, a couple. One was we had problems with goalkeepers. We were looking to bring in another keeper, but it was after January, so we could only bring in players from three divisions below us because that in it that was where the cutoff point was, um, and they had to not have played for anyone higher up. So, oh no, that was in Wales. So Welsh level down. You're, you're talking about park football. Um, and, and you're just sort of searching around. What what players can we find? Basically, professional players were almost cut off from us. Um, and another example of it was when Robin Ryan took over. The the, trans, the the final part of the takeover was dragging through January, and Dean Keats wanted to spend money because we had a side pushing for promotion, and they basically couldn't release that money to him because they hadn't taken over. In the end, we were able to buy Tyler French and Dior Angus on the last day of the transfer window, but. That was it. So poor Keats, you know, didn't benefit. And he did a very good job, actually, bringing in players who were half-decent, not great, but half-decent, um, who did actually qualify. You know, that they were... They ticked all the boxes to actually be eligible to be signed outside of the transfer windows. Um, but you're very, very, very slim pickings in that situation. So, yeah, next, if we go up, we will be back into that system, but it'll be all right then because everyone else is in that system. So that that's fair enough. It was the fact that only us were restricted and nobody else that made a big difference. So I've got to say, last year when we were under that restriction, Parkinson did a brilliant job getting as much of the team pulled together as possible in the summer, but then he had to wait till January to finish the job, bringing in Palmer, McFadgen, O'Connor. Stockport, if you look back at them, were buying expensive players from the Football League all through the season to bolster their, their squads. They had an advantage that probably was a decisive factor last season. Especially when you look at Parkinson's strike rate in the transfer windows. He tends to bring in a lot of players that move the club forwards. If he'd been able to do that without restriction, yeah, we'd have been all right. Right, Chris Fernston says, Great we now have streaming, so I can watch every game from Gloucestershire. If we go up, will we still get streaming? I think it'd be pretty much the same. Um, the platform we're on, the Wrexham Player platform, is the Football League's platform. Um, as things stand at the moment, now, there's... Yeah, basically, there will be, as I understand it, streaming of games if they're not 3 o'clock. Oh, but that's internationally, isn't it? Internationally, I think you can get any game streamed in the Football League. I think there's a there are restrictions. Certainly that three o'clock Saturday slot's not allowed uh, to be streamed. However, there's a lot of talk that that might be dropped by next season, that they might change the regulation. Because let's be honest, streaming is the future of broadcast. A lot of big clubs now are pushing for the ability to stream on their own terms without a, a sort of collective uh, streaming deal so they can make all that money for themselves. So, yeah, you'll, you will get something, definitely. How much... We'd probably, we may have to wait and see, but it's going to get... It'll probably be positive if people want to stream rather than not. Al Hanna says, In the Scunthorpe game, we've got a little glimpse of the new signee, Andy Cannon. How long does it take for someone uh, to get fully developed in Phil's system? And also, we currently have a very strong midfield 
whose position will uh, Cannon be uh, pushing for? Uh, great question. It's <laughs> funny, isn't it? It talks about coaching earlier and how coaching has developed. I think, quite frankly, not so long ago, players didn't have to be embedded into systems much. Players were sort of lobbed in. And, yeah, yeah, son, get used to how we play. Uh, now, it's much more common to see a player have to learn what to do in different situations because football's more tactical, I would argue. Um, you look at Liverpool as an example. Players, World-class players like Fabinho have come in there and not got into the team straight away because they had to work out how they fit into pressing patterns and recognise triggers and things like that. Um, and Phil Parkson clearly has, with some players, brought them through a little bit and you know, drip-fed them into the system. Elliot Lee didn't settle in straight away, although he was making massive contributions, but we still had to find a way to, to fit him into the system. We started off by changing the system for him, and that didn't really work, so we tried to find other ways around it. Uh, and it's worked beautifully, isn't it, now? The uh, Cannon, though, I mean, he looks like the right sort of player. Say, Parkinson, like I said before, is good at buying the right sort of player for his setup. And he looks tidy, he looks sharp, he looks smart. And I think that he won't take too long to settle into it. It's just the fact that at the moment we've got so much strength in midfield, he's going to have to work for a place like everyone else's. Whose place will he threaten? Well, it's an interesting one, that. The most obvious answer is... All right, look at our midfield. We essentially got three in the middle and one of them is a central one, maybe sitting a little deeper. I wouldn't necessarily go so far as to say we play with a holding midfielder sitting in front of the back three, though. But he's a little deeper central one. Um, Cannon played left side of that three against Scunthorpe and that does seem like his natural spot. He can come inside, use his right foot. Um, but having said that, I can imagine him in the deeper position. He's not as strong in terms of tackling, though, so he would have to be more a deep-lying playmaker than a holding midfielder. So you could see him really playing across the three. I mean, that's the beauty of the strength and depth we got down midfield. We've got a bit of everything, haven't we? We've got Young and Jones who are runners, you know, number eights getting box to box. You've got players like Cannon who are, who are technical and can get forwards and hit it, or Jordan Davis or Elliot Lee. Uh, you know, players that can create. You've got players like O'Connor who can anchor the midfield, but are also very good on the ball and can go play in the higher positions. You can make arguments for a lot of them fitting into different slots. So I guess Cannon suits the left-sided role most, but that doesn't mean he'll be restricted to it. You know, full-backs, wing-backs, wingers, you sometimes pigeonhole as being better on one side than the other, but we're talking about central positions here. You won't be knocking too much balance out of the team if you switch them around a bit, or disorientating him so much if you switch them around a bit. I always find that fascinating. Some full-backs, particularly, just can't play on the other side, and others are fine. So, for example, Bryce Hosanna looks totally comfortable player on either side. It's hard to see much difference with him. And then other players, you'll see, always play on one side or the other. And if you put them on the wrong side, they look deeply confused. Um, oh, hang on, I forgot to put, change the order of this one, so pardon me. Um, SG Lightning, again, saying about um, my answer to brotherly rivals was choppy uh, on Saturday. So can I mention a few of uh, more of them in the podcast? Absolutely. Well, this is my list. I'm not saying this is exhaustive. But here's my list of brothers who played for Exum. Um, ranging from, at the top, Tommy Bamford, a legendary player who scored, well, the only player for Exum ever to score over 200 goals and who scored at a remarkable rate, briefly had his brother, Walter, in the same team. 
Uh, more recent examples, Steve Roberts and Neil Roberts, the replies to the original tweets by JD actually uh, gave a lot of the, the best and most obvious recent examples. Uh, so the Roberts brothers, Neil, who played for Wales, Stephen, who was very close to playing for Wales. Um, you've also got players like the Whitley brothers, who both play for Northern Ireland. Um, they were born in Zambia and raised in Manchester, so of course they both played for Northern Ireland, and they were both very good players. Jeff came to us on loan and was extremely impressive, but was never going to stay because his future was higher up, really. Jim then came to us, and he was terrific, especially in our promotion season of 2003, and in the subsequent years, sort of bedding us down in League One. He was either a fullback, a very solid, reliable fullback, or a very solid holding midfielder. So, so they were a class pair. Mark and Mike Williams were brilliant players for us in the National League. You wonder what if, you know, what if questions. Our first season down in the National League, Mark Williams was on fire, scored pretty much every goal he scored for Wrexham in that season, and then had an innocuous challenge with a goalkeeper and broke a bone in his foot, was out for the rest of the season, and our season fell apart completely. Jeff Louis was playing alongside him, who was also prolific, just stopped scoring. I think Mark Williams didn't just play well for himself. I think he used to talk Jeff Louis through a lot of the games. And, uh, and Mark was never quite the same when he came back, sadly, either. Very good player, Mark Williams. And I always liked his brother Mike as well, who was a really good defender, either left-back or centre-back, very reliable. And then going back in time, you got the Spruce Brothers. Uh, yeah. Oh, and of course, Connor and James Jennings, the most recent example. So I remember... Well, Connor and James definitely played against each other, James for Wrexham. Um... And I remember seeing Wrexham playing against Doncaster and Neil Roberts was playing for Wrexham. Steve was playing for Doncaster. So there's examples of players playing, brothers playing against each other, which I think was the original question in the first place. If not, I'm confused, but I always am. A sort of sad one, this from Jim in Monticello. Uh, in light of what happened Monday night, a Buffalo Bills player, Damar Hamlin, going into cardiac arrest, has any English football league game been halted for any other on any I can't read any on-field incident yes I mean sadly there have been some dreadful examples of this and um, most obvious recent examples uh, there was oh my gosh my mind's gone blank I was reading about him yesterday a Bolton player right I've completely forgotten his name that's terrible that's inexcusable who um, thankfully survived Fabrice Muamba, he, he, he thankfully survived, but it was terrible, it was collapsed in the game, no one was near him, he'd had a cardiac arrest, um, he did survive, obviously he couldn't, I say obviously he couldn't play against, but Christian Eriksen to be fair, the European Championships collapsed, and is now back playing for Manchester United, he's had a defibrillator fitted, uh, Daily, uh, Danny Blint also, Daily Blint rather, has also had similar issues, but is able to continue playing, um, Muamba certainly couldn't, it's interesting as a show on on the Sky Channel, um, Portrait Artist of the Year. It's quite a good show actually, where they get people painting famous people, and one year this guy won and he was superb, and his commission to uh, his reward for winning it was painting Muamba for one of the big galleries, and it was a terrific painting where he did a painting of him. Um, with his heart, with a key. Oh, I, I, there's not much point in me trying to explain it, but if you find a picture of it, it's very good. Um, but that was a really moving TV show as they talked about what happened to Moamba in order for him to get an idea on how to paint him. Um, 
uh, tragic examples like Mark Vivian Foy, who was an excellent midfielder who played for Cameroon and Manchester City, who collapsed in the Con um, Confederations Cup in I think it was 2003, I think that was. That was the competition that FIFA would hold the summer before a World Cup in the host country as a little mini warm-up exercise between all the, the continental champions. Oh, and it was dreadfully collapsed and died on the pitch. Again, nobody was near him. Um, in 1990, I want to say 91, I remember watching a Wrexham game against York City and my eye was caught by the York striker, David Longhurst, who was warming up in the most furious manner possible. And I, I assume what happened was he was told, we'll give you an hour, warm yourself up beforehand, we'll bring, off, bring you off on an hour, but just be ready to go and just put an hour's worth of effort in, you know, really push yourself. And he was very impressive, very lively in that game. They took him off after an hour. Horribly, the next Saturday, he collapsed in a game and died. Um, I'm, I'm not trying to say he was pushed too far, but you could see he was really was pushing himself very hard. Bless him. They named a stand after him in York City's old ground. And there is a, a very sad example um, of a fatality at the race course. And that was Jack Kirby, who was actually born in America, born in Chicago, and came over as a small child to Scotland. He moved south and played one game for Stoke City and then signed for Wrexham. And he, he played a handful of games for Wrexham. He was never consistently first choice. But then in 1953, he was playing a reserve game against Crew Alexandra on the race course, and he collapsed and was taken to the hospital, but didn't survive. He was only 23 years old, the poor lad. So sadly, that has happened to us on the race course pitch as well. Moving on to uh, more happy suggestions. Mr. Speedy wants to know what's my favourite part of Wrexham? Oh, there's a question. Um, right. My first thought on this was Erdig, the nice little country park on the edge of town, which actually is uh, right behind my my where I work. So it's quite nice at lunch times when it's sunny, but uh, Mrs. Griffiths might come along get a takeaway cuppa and we'll go for a little walk. I don't mean this, it's a big stately home, Irving. I don't mean the stately home. I mean the grounds because there's a big public park which are basically the stately home's grounds. And it's a it's just a really nice park to walk down. There's a couple of steep hills. You go wandering down the hill. There's woods you can go into if you want to. Um, on, and there's a river. You can sit by the river. It's just a nice pretty place. I like it. We've worked out the exact uh, distance we can walk to ensure that I then get back in time for work in the afternoon. Um, looking in the town at the city oops, itself, um, I do like a good coffee, and I would say Bank Street Social is probably the place to go for a cuppa in town, to be honest with you. Nice, very narrow streets, quite cute, lots of local shops there, rather than you know the generic shops you get elsewhere, which would pop up in every town. Um, very good coffee, very friendly. If you come from outside of Wrexham, I would recommend going there as a good way of meeting local people because it lives up to its name. It's quite small and it is sociable. Uh, you do tend to go in there and have a chat. In fact, I've got to be honest, I, I spend a lot of my time in coffee shops in Wrexham, but not there because often I go in order to get some work done for the football club. And I won't get it done there because I will end up having a chat with someone 
and <laughs> having a cuppa and then leaving. So if I want to get stuff done on my computer, I'll go to one of the chain coffee shops. Um, but yeah, that's a nice little spot. It's close to St. Giles Cathedral, of course, uh, St. Giles Parish Church, rather, which is a magnificent building, very historic, uh, really interesting history behind it in lots of different ways. Um, what else should I mention? Oh, not far from where I live is Acton Park. That's also another one. It's a public park, which used to be the grounds of a stately home. The stately home's no longer there. Um, it's a nice park to wander around. So that's my other favourite place, I guess, at Wrexham. However, there's an interesting little side note for Wrexham fans that it's also the site of the very first Welsh Cup final. The first Welsh Cup final between Wrexham and Druids. Now, Wrexham, the racecourse, was basically where big Welsh games would be played at that time, some of the 1870s. Um, Druids, understandably, said, we don't particularly want to play the final of the racecourse. Why should we give them home advantage? Now, the bloke who lived in Acton Hall, the stately home which is no longer there, was uh, Lord, Cun Lord Cunliffe, George Cunliffe. And he was head of the FAW, the Welsh FA. And so he said, well, OK, then I'll let you play on my grounds. And so they made a pitch on Acton Park. So, funnily enough, I live just on the road from where the first Welsh Cup final was played. So, that's a, but it's a nice park. It's a car park, that bit now. Uh, so it's not quite, there's nothing to see in terms of football, but it's a, it's a nice park to wander around. So, yeah, I think those are, those are my answers. Is there anything else that I've missed? Oh, the race course. I, I like the race course. Spent quite a bit of time there. Yeah, yeah. Can't deny that. Yeah, that'll do for me. Right, next one. Oh, I, um, what's my favourite Wrexham moment of all time? Oh, my gosh. You know the cliche is going to be Wrexham when Steve Watkins scores against Arsenal and beats them. That was amazing. I've said previously how when Wrexham beat Porto, I see that as possibly bigger than the Arsenal game. That was remarkable. When we listened to that on the radio when Barry Horn scored the, the winning goal and going insane in my mum and dad's house. Um... It's hard to go beyond things like that in some ways, but when you see a player just do something mad, it is fantastic to see. So when you see some incredible strikes by players that just take your breath away. We have the Steve Edwards Gold of Season trophy, named after Steve Edwards, who uh, was a commentator who I loved working with, a lovely man, a great volunteer who did so much for the club and sadly... Um, he became ill and passed away and we named the goals a season trophy after him and the first winner fittingly was incredible by Jay Harris who hit the ball from a ludicrous distance so there's yeah maybe that's mine it was wonderful but if I stop and think I'll probably come up with more so this is why I should not stop and think Grumpy Sports Fan says, is it too early to say it's in our hands? That's win the title, of course. No, Grumpy Sports Fan, it is not. It is most definitely in our hands. I mean, not only because if we win our games in hand, we go top, but also because not even, even before Notts County dropped points at the weekend, it was in our hands because they've got to come to ours, um, as have Chesterfield. So oh, it's definitely in our hands. This is what we wanted. We're a strong team. I back this team. I'm in a position now where if we maintain our standards, we win the title. No question. Definitely in our hands. No no two ways about it. Jim, again. A follow-up on last week's COP question. Will the new stand still be called the COP? Or the R&R &R Grandstand? Great question. <clears throat> um, I think it'd be the Disney's Mark Griffiths stand. No, I don't. 
I think that I don't know. Uh, nothing's really been said, to be honest. I strongly suspect they'll keep the cop name simply because it's iconic and it's all been referred to as the cop stands. I know it's shorthand. I mean, it makes sense to sell the naming rights, doesn't it, really, to make money for the club. But um, I'm... I know, I, I, there's been no nothing coming out of the club that I'm aware of to say whether they would sell the rights or not, um, or what it would be called, but I suspect the word cop will be in there. Janie Lightning again. Asking, oh, this is a, a beauty about the pitch in 1902 being rotated. Well, thankfully, we've got uh, an on-the-scene reporter, so I'll hand over to Mark at the racecourse. Thanks, Mark. Well, I'm here now at the racecourse because S. Janie Lightning has an excellent question. Spoiler alert, I don't know the answer. Hopefully I'll have found her out by the time I hand back to Mark in the studio. But for those of you watching on the video feed, I thought I could at least illustrate what her question was about. If you're on the audio feed, I'll try to paint a picture with words. She asked, why was the pitch rotated 90 degrees? Now, so the pitch used to be at right angles to how it is now, and it was basically the side of the pitch ran alongside the cop. So behind the pitch would be the turf pub, which can't be seen now because the Yale stands, uh, that was sorry, bigger the Macron stand blocks off the view of it. That was where the players used to change, but a long time ago it was rotated 90 degrees. Why did they do that? I'm not sure. I'm genuinely not sure. However, I have one theory. So, who knows if I'm right? If not, you can fast forward this bit. Um, but I'll just show you my theory if you're watching on the video. The sun comes from behind the Macron stand. It's just going under the line of the stand now. Um, this is now, what, 2.13. It can be an issue when you're commentating or if you're in the stand that the sun's in your eyes. Um, you can see, actually, behind me, the, the shadows of the seats. It's quite a strong sun coming across and it's right in your eyes often until, depending on what time of year, it can be for the first half hour of the match. Now, some football grounds have definitely been designed so that the big stand has its back to the sun. So in the early days of football, when clubs would maybe have one big stand and the rest standing, they would put the big stand with its back to the sun because that would be the place where you'd pay a little bit more to sit down so there were posher seats and also just practically that it will give some protection from the sun so that could be an explanation because the side the Macron stand is on used to be like the main stand at the race course in the old days when my dad used to watch Wrexham in the 40s there was a big wooden stand there and the rest of it was more of timber banking cinder banking so that might be an explanation but maybe, and the time it's taken me to do a bit of research, there'll be a, another answer that we can give you. So I'll hand back over to you, Mark, in the studio. Thanks, Mark. What's he talking about? Studio? I'm in my garage. Uh, so, uh, thanks, Mark, yes. Um, well, I'm afraid further research hasn't got me any further. I thought more and more about Janie's point about making space for the car. Remember, the race course used to be, wait for it, a race course um, and so yeah there's some sort of reconfiguring going on there possibly to make room for the cop because the, the finishing post was quite close to 
you know, where the turf is, therefore I guess the curve would go round. Early days the race course was around the pitch, so I guess if you want to put spectators on the cop part of that area, you may well want to switch the stand around the pitch around. But I've not found anything that conclusively explains why it was done, just that it was done. So yeah, I don't know if you know better. I'd be fascinated to hear about this. But yeah, I, I've not found anything that explains properly why this happened. Right, three sevens. Glad to see the mosaic back up in the Mold Road stand. Do you have any stories about Les Evans? Oh, I feel bad now, Reese, because you said you couldn't wait to hear these, and not that much. Um, Les Evans, an absolutely iconic figure in Wrexham through the the 90s and 2000s and no longer with us sadly um but he was a, a photographer for the local paper and you saw him all the time if you were in school at Wrexham he'd be there taking photos he was at all the games he was because his main love was taking pictures of the Wrexham matches he had an exhibition I remember of Wrexham photos and he was a idiosyncratic bloke but I mean that as a massive compliment uh, he never agreed with people for the sake of agreeing. He was very much an independent thinker, and that was very much to his credit as well. Uh, always had the interest of the club at heart, and he always, as well, I felt, had the interest, I sound odd this, of people like me, like volunteers, people who put something into the club. He was always a fierce defender of people who he felt were doing something for the club, at the love of the club, and he wanted them to be seen right. So he was a very um, generous-minded man, a lovely fella, and I miss him, to be honest. It's great to have those sort of strong personalities around, especially when they're pulling the right direction. Did a lot of good for the club, uh, more maybe than people realise. Um, Aaron Zumwalt says, is there, is there a reason why different team colours, for different team colours? So Solihull were yellow and blue one game, then red in the second one. Wrexham were in red, blue, well, actually in white in the first game. I was getting confused with team was Wrexham. I heard the commentator on the stream was as well. Um, right, normal, and uh, John Davis gave an answer to your tweet, which answered it correctly. Um, the normal idea is that you have a home kit and an away kit. If there's no clash, then you just don't play with your normal colours. Um, but if there is a clash... The away team wears their away kit. If there's a clash then, teams tend to have a third kit. It used to be that you wouldn't really have a third kit because it was quite rare. But now you can sell that third kit, can't you? It's under commercial uh, reasons mean teams tend to have at least three kits. So say Wrexham. Say Wrexham's first kit was red and we were away to Sheffield United whose kit is red and white stripes. Then if our second kit was white, we can't wear that either. So we go to a third kit. So that's the idea, and as I've also explained uh, in response to your tweet, the reason for the the change of colours was admirable in the Saudi Hull games. Both clubs are supporting um, Shelter, which is the main charity in Britain to support the homeless, their No Home Kit campaign, which was a brilliant initiative to try and raise awareness, where basically they said, you know, if you have no home, you know, then... It doesn't, you know, it doesn't matter what your circumstances are, and so no home kit. It was trying to drive that point through, so it was it was quite. I'm not expressed that well at all, but um, look it up because <laughs> I obviously can't express it. Uh, but that was why the, the kits were changed around so much. You do see it done for commercial purposes. Teams wearing kits for a certain reason. 
and Chad Firmston, uh, sorry, Chris Chad, says uh, he remembers Brian Tinian, uh, early 70s, playing what a pre-season for Crusaders Sunday League team at the Pon at Ponky, and he was playing against us. Trying to get fit. What only thing I remember of the game. I scored a 30-yard screamer and was disappointed and never said anything to Yes, uh, Chris, I, I don't mean to make you feel old, but when you look at the state of me and you hear what I'm about to say, I guess inevitably I will do. Um, yeah, I don't remember Brian Tinian. <laughs> I know people who've told me how great he was. I remember that the main, the most memorable quote I heard is that he loved dribbling so much that if you opened the gate on the side of the pitch, he'd have just dribbled with the ball off the pitch and down the hill into town. But he does sound like a fantastic character. I'll try and find him, see if I can get him onto Dragonheart. That would be fantastic, wouldn't it? And then Darren's Happy Place. This is the last question, and it's a beaut. Uh, here's a question on statistics. Besides the obvious goals scored or conceded and time of possession, what are your favourite statistics to determine how good or bad a team's playing? X, uh, X goals? Right. Fantastic question. And I'm going to be honest with you. It's going to be something I think I do quite a lot. I suspect I'm going to have a bit of a rant about things I don't like about data and then not give a completely straight answer. I apologise. So, here goes nothing. In a weird way, that goal difference one and the points is the most important thing. Um, the use of data in football is fascinating and it's still developing. It's In Britain, people keep talking about Moneyball. Um and I would say that before the publication of Moneyball, the use of data in football was fairly limited at a professional level and has exploded enormously. The problem has been, how exactly do you quantify a sport that is so fluid? Baseball, cricket, which also uses data very well, um, tends to be sports of set individual plays and therefore you can quantify them a lot more easily. Football, once you've kicked it off, you've got 22 different bodies moving around, the ball can move around, and, and nothing is the same now. So because of that, it, it's slightly harder to quantify. And it's been fascinating seeing how these ideas have developed. Now, having said that, um, obviously media have tried to keep up with the fact that more and more data is used and often mass media does it quite badly so for example the thing about uh, the amount of possession now that's one of the classic stats you always see the percentage of possession on on tv graphics during a game does it mean anything though i mean some teams will play in a manner where they don't value possession i mean i'll give you a, a super extreme example which was when jose Mourinho's inter side in I want to say 2010 won the Champions League they were remarkably defensive and they played Barcelona in the semi-finals Guardiola's Barcelona a, you know a remarkable team who people felt weren't going to be stopped by Inter and so basically well, well I mean circumstances were kind to them because it was when that volcano went up in Iceland and planes couldn't fly and because of that the first leg in 
Milan, if I remember correctly, Barcelona had to go there by bus, weren't quite themselves, so into 1-3-1 and got an advantage. The second leg in Barcelona, everyone was saying, oh, that was unjust, Barcelona will batter them. And Inter decided to let Barcelona have the ball. And so famously, they only had 10% possession. But they intended that. They defended remarkably well, and they won well, they lost 1-0 on the night, but that was enough for, to put them through to the final, which they also won. <clears throat> so that's a team deliberately rejecting possession. They'd happily just thump the ball back to Barcelona because they were only interested in their own defensive shape. Now that's an extreme example, but consider this. Teams that like to counter-press, um, okay, Leeds United under Bielsa and uh, Marsh, for example, um, well, it's hard to counter-press if you've got the ball, so they'll take risks with the ball more than some other sides because that's when they can try and win it back as the other side are, are, are trying to make a transition. And the theory is that when a team's in transition, that's when their shape's bad and you can attack them and so you win the ball back quickly. So, uh, yeah, that's often used as a key stat, and it, it can be, but, you know, if, if one side's not prioritising keeping the ball, then... It's a pretty false friend in a way. <clears throat> XG is a good stat, I think, in terms of over the course of a game, you know, who's created the better chances. I, th I think that's absolutely reasonable. But I, th I think for me, you've got to look at a team and ask yourself, how are they looking to win this? What are they looking to take advantage of? Are they looking to dominate possession? Are they looking to, to pen the other side back? In which case, you know, there are ways to measure that. Are they not looking to do that? Are you looking, could you look at how many sprints their wide players have made, for example, because they're trying to get wide players round the sides on a, on a breakaway, on a transition? So there's this, it's, I think you've got to look at the style of the team. I think you've got to consider what they're trying to do. And then you've got to look at stats that are relevant to that in order to get a proper idea. Um, although, yeah, I mean, XG or even just shots on goal. Could be interesting. Although my dad always used to poo-poo shots on goal. Um, and this is going back a long time to the 80s or 70s when he would complain that Jimmy Hill, who was an iconic presenter on Match Today, was one of the first people to get interested in stats, but it was on a more basic level. And he'd constantly be talking about it. He had more shots on goal than the other side. And my dad would always point out that if you scuffed the ball from 30 yards and it dribbled slowly to the goalkeeper who controlled it with his foot while reading a magazine... Um, that counts as an on-target shot on goal. And he's quite right. <laughs> you know, so, yeah. I think you've got to be wary of a lot of these stats. You've got to have context. And and most valuable context, perhaps, is, you know, what do you think their coach wanted? How many tackles did you win? If you're a counter-pressing side, if you want to win the ball back, how many tackles did you win? Where did you win those tackles? If you're Bielsa or George Sampaoli or Jesse Marsh or, or Klopp... Um, or Guardiola to some extent, then you would you would like to see a pitch map that is going to show that there are a lot of tackles made by your players in the opposing half because you're not letting them come out. Um, you might want to play with a high line and you might want to see lots of offsides against the other side where they've gone too soon. Um, so, yeah, I think you've got to look at, look at what, it is, what do you think the manager's game plan is? How are they hoping to win this match? And then what stats would tell you how well that's going? Yeah, that was a. I hope that wasn't a fence-sitting answer. Anyway, right. I'm off to now go into my cocoon and consider Coventry against Wrexham. 
Uh, hope you can join us on Wrexham Player if you're not watching the stream. And bombard us with Ask Wrexham questions. It's the best way to enjoy a fuzzy match. I'll see you soon. I am Mark Griffiths from Wrexham AFC and Disney. This is the Final Whistle Podcast from the Wrexham AFC media team.